Okay, okay. Yeah, start us off. Welcome, everybody, uh, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast featuring uh, me, Jay Bhattacharya, professor in the medical school at Stanford, and uh, independent journalist Rav Aurora. Today, we have with us a fantastic guest and a, and a friend of mine, uh, uh, Professor Aaron Cariotti. Um, Professor Cariotti came to prominence during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic because of his principal opposition to vaccine mandates, uh, an opposition that led him to being being let go from his primary job as a professor in uh, at UC Irvine, uh, a, and and then um, also later, Professor Cariotti wrote a fantastic book uh, with the title "The Rise of the Biomedical Security State." Uh, Aaron, it is fantastic to have you on the show, and and a delight to be able to speak with you. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be with you. Uh, great to be with Rav. Uh, really appreciate the work that you've done, of course, during the pandemic and appreciate the work that the two of you are doing together now with your newsletter on Substack and your new podcast. So it's it's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's great to talk with you, Aaron. I've been following your work for some time. I think I first saw you on Megyn Kelly's show uh, maybe last year at some point, and I uh, it really resonated with uh, what you were saying at the time, and uh, I've been wanting to talk to you since, so I'm glad uh, this is finally the opportunity for us to discuss some common interests. Aaron, um, I wanted to start by letting you basically introduce yourself to the audience, because you have such an interesting background. Uh, you, you obviously are a psychiatrist, practicing, right? You you see, you still That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and but you and you have, so that means you have an MD, but you also have training in philosophy. Can you tell us how you got to that and what's what's how how you've combined that in your career? Sure. Yeah. So my undergraduate background is in philosophy with a focus on the history of ethics at the University of Notre Dame, and I I continued my interest in philosophy and medical ethics throughout medical school. I went to Georgetown where I had the good fortune of doing some research and. Uh, writing a paper with uh, and doing some additional training with a man named Edmund Pellegrino. And Pellegrino was one of the grand old men of American bioethics. He passed away a few years ago, but he's probably considered one of the founding fathers, if you will, of the discipline of bioethics, which really grew up in the 1960s and 1970s in the United States. Uh, Professor Pellegrino chaired the U.S. President's Council on Bioethics for a number of years, so very well-regarded uh, figure in the field. And then when I got into residency, I, again, while I was doing my training in psychiatry, kept my other foot in the, the realm of medical ethics, joined the Ethics Committee, continued doing research and writing in bioethics. So it was part of my uh, career path, part of my educational training really from the beginning, starting with my undergraduate days. Even even when I look back on the stuff I was reading in high school, I can see that the interests started very early on. And so while I was at the university, I did four years of residency training at UC Irvine and then joined the faculty right after I finished residency and was on faculty for 15 years. I was involved in the medical ethics program from the beginning and was tapped a few years into my, my time there to... Uh, chair the ethics committee and to direct the medical ethics program and to develop it. So that that involved doing ethics consults 
in the so hospital. You, you weren't just a simple fringe bioethicist. You were, you were, actually, <laughs> you were pretty well, involved. I, with yeah, I may have been fringe, but I was a bioethicist. I mean, I, I had, you know, I had the title and the credentials and the peer reviewed publications and all the rest of it from the university. The university trusted me, for example, uh, to, to d develop the bioethics program. Uh, the university trusted me to be in charge of the ethics consultation process on very, sometimes very fraught cases in the hospital. Some of the most difficult clinical cases, some of the most difficult ethical and clinical decisions that we had to make at the university hospital. And they also trusted me to teach the required ethics course to the first and second year medical students, which was a well-regarded, highly rated course. I, I won the excellence in teaching award from the medical students four times during my time at, at the university. So yeah, I mean, I had, I had the credentials and I had the chops. And in fact, Jay, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, UC, uh, University of California has several branch campuses and five of those branch campuses have hospitals, UCLA, UC Irvine, uh, UC San Francisco and so forth. And so they got representatives from all five of these hospitals at the office of the president, which oversees all of the University of California branch campuses. And the job of our committee was essentially to vet all of the COVID related policies, which we did up until the vaccine mandate policy, up until the policy that I ran into difficulties with. And given the fact that I had worked from the beginning of the pandemic developing ethically sensitive policies, for example, our ventilator triage policy, I was very deeply involved in the development and, and writing of that policy. And that's that's a publicly sensitive policy. They, they, In fact, they tapped the chair of the committee and me to be the public spokespeople for that policy. So the oh, University wow. of California trusted me to explain to the public, you know, if in the, um, you know, if in the event that we run out of ventilators and demand for ventilators outstrips supply, here's how we're going to try to fairly allocate those ventilators. So, so Obviously, it, well, you know, a fraught I, topic. What, what sorts of principles go into deciding something like that? It's, it is yeah, so, yeah, so that's a, it's a good question. And the, the principles involve things like transparency, which has been a guiding principle for me during uh, the pandemic, including my critique of many of the public policies. So you have to explain what you're doing and why clearly in advance and subject that to public scrutiny. The, the principles in terms of allocating the ventilators have to do with trying to do the most good that we can with the resources that we have. And that means that you can take into account the likelihood of someone benefiting from the ventilator. You can look at medical issues or even age-related issues insofar as they're directly relevant to prognosis. How much is this person going to benefit, you know, in all likelihood, if we put them on a ventilator? What you can't do is that you cannot take demographic factors or race-related factors, uh, ethnicity, um, sex, or even age, if it's not prognosis, prognostic, and use that as a criteria. And what happened with a lot of the ventilator triage policies that were being developed at that time, including the state of California's policy, 
was that they used age in a way that was not directly prognostic, but that was discriminatory. So it makes a difference if you give a ventilator to a 90-year-old versus a 40-year-old or a 30-year-old for COVID. But it doesn't really make a difference if you give a ventilator to a 30 versus a 35-year-old for COVID. That age distinction is not directly prognostic. So the state actually ran into um, difficulties with age-related and disability-related discrimination that our policy had avoided. So I was also consulted, actually, after the state of California and the Department of Public Health in California kind of stepped in it and got a lot of public pushback, I think rightly so. We had avoided some of those problems in our policy. So they actually brought myself and the chair of our committee in to fix their policy and make sure that it didn't run afoul of federal law, either the Americans with Disability Act or federal law that prohibits age-related discrimination. So, I, so yeah, so I was involved. Then, so the idea then would be this, if if you have somebody for whom the vet, ventilator would benefit or whatever, it doesn't have to be ventilated, the treatment would benefit, you would reserve the treatment for that person rather than somebody whom the, the, the treatment doesn't benefit very much. That's right. And that seems utterly sensible. Uh, you're focusing your limited resources on the set of people that are going to going to benefit you're not just like willy-nilly uh trying to uh spread the spread the the treatments around or the or the limited resources around simply because of equity but rather equity is in the service of of uh of getting good results for people that's that seems that's exactly be- right you're, you're trying to save as many lives as possible you know, you're not trying to deprive anyone of anything. Of course, the really fraught circumstance that everyone worries about is someone who's already on a ventilator, but unlikely to benefit from ongoing ventilation, removing that person from a ventilator in order to give that ventilator to someone else. I mean, you could imagine how, even if you believe it's the right thing to do, that's still going to be a morally anguishing kind of circumstance for the people involved. So, so this was a tough policy. I mean, I mean I'm not going to deny thing, it's, it's a really it's, difficult policy. It, it's a hard policy, and the University of California trusts you a to tr- right. help develop it, and then b to communicate to the public at large about it. Right. So at this That's point, right. this is 2020. You're not you're not censored. You're and actually, from what I've what what, what you've described to me in my in my rudimentary training in bioethics, that sounds completely. Uh, within the consensus of most bioethicists that, that are working. Correct. Um, Correct. But what happened then, Jay uh, and Rav, is that unlike all the other policies that we had dealt with, including the vaccine allocation policy. So you'll remember initially when the vaccines first rolled out, there was questions about who should be offered the vaccine first. Right. And that that's a morally sensitive question oh, as well. I, I, still, I still remember some of my former students posting on Facebook in late December, early January, 2021, um, early January, 2021, late December, 2020, bragging that they'd been vaccinated. And I was actually quite upset because I thought, you know, the vaccine should be reserved for people who would benefit the most from it, which was older people. That's right. That's right. I, and I, I completely agree. My, what I pushed for in those, in those debates was giving vaccines to those who were uh, most vulnerable for bad outcomes from COVID. I was not in favor of allocating it first to healthcare professionals. Although, you know, there were arguments being made as, you know, if we, if we 
too many doctors are out due to infection with COVID, then we're not going to be able to treat sick people and more lives may be lost. So, I mean, there, there were there were legitimate debates to be had about that whole question. But I was always firmly of, of the opinion, you give the vaccine first to people who are most likely uh, to die from COVID. And, you know, basically that needs to be our criteria. But but my point here is that I was involved in those discussions with the University of California's policies. I may not have gotten everything that I wanted in, in you know, in terms of a committee decision, but um, but when it came to the vaccine mandate policy, so requiring, now forwarding, this is like, yeah, fast forward a few months later. So now yeah. supply exceeds demand for the for the vaccines. And there's people that are that have hesitancy about the vaccines, either for moral reasons, religious reasons um, or medical reasons or just just precautionary principle that, you know, this is a novel product and I want to see a little bit more data before I decide whether or not to take it. Uh, or I've already recovered from COVID. I have natural immunity. And so I, I, you know, I don't think I need the vaccine. There were a lot of people that were um, not opting to take it. And the university was saying, okay, we're, we're considering a policy to, we're proposing a policy to require everyone at the university from the students to the, you know, custodial staff to the president to take this vaccine. And what struck me about the way in which the university went about that was that our committee was never consulted and there was never any meaningful public discussion or debate. And I knew as soon as the policy was proposed that this was going to be the most ethically controversial policy wait, wait, of on. all the ones that we had reviewed. Aaron, you're saying that the University of California, in deciding to impose a vaccine mandate, even on students young male students as young as 18, when there's evidence of myocarditis floating around associated with vaccine vaccine doses yeah. for, for uh, in that group at high rates, you're saying that the, the University of California made that decision without consulting its primary ethics board. That's correct. That Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And in fact, when I saw the draft policy before it was finalized, they did share the draft policy with us, but we were never involved in, in the drafting of the policy. And then I tried to get a conversation going at the committee and the whole thing just fell like a lead balloon. It was almost sort of shut down. Like this is coming down from on high. We're not talking about this. This is not going to be a discussion. And so I, <laughs> as a way to we, try to get a conversation going, I, I actually published a piece with professor Jerry Bradley, a law professor um, in the wall street journal with the title university vaccine mandates are unethical <laughs> and that was an attempt to kind of like prime the pump and you know i so i made a public statement that i think this is this is not a good policy so so why, why don't you review your primary arguments of over there? yeah yeah so at, at that time i mean i was on the orange county vaccine task force i, I was not a quote-unquote anti-vaxxer whatever that word might mean today um i think it's mostly used as an epithet to abuse people who raise questions about vaccines. But um, but I was, when I saw the initial data on the vaccine, I was pretty optimistic. Uh, just looking at the New England Journal of Medicine uh, uh, publication on the vaccine data, I thought, hey, this looks pretty good, right? Um, so I didn't really have safety and efficacy concerns right out of the gate when the vaccine was first rolled out. But I, I started to take a look at what was happening um, and later, then when some of the some of the evidence came out of 
maybe higher rates of side effects than we had initially anticipated and more short-lived efficacy than we had maybe initially hoped for. But when I wrote the piece in the Wall Street Journal, it was not an argument about safety and efficacy of the vaccines. It was an argument based on the fact that these vaccine mandates violated the principle of informed consent. So it was really an ethical argument, regardless of how good uh, or not so good these products might be, competent adults of sound mind have the right to decide what goes into their body. I have a follow-up question. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. you want to finish? Go ahead. Yeah, and just one one little caveat on that, because the counter-argument, just to, to give appropriate weight to the counter-argument, counter-argument with vaccines is yes, but um, but when you're talking about vaccination, it doesn't just affect the recipient, it affects other people. And I think that argument might carry a little bit more ethical weight if you have what's called a sterilizing vaccine, a vaccine that actually stops infection and transmission, and therefore my choice to get vaccinated does have implications for the people around me. But it was very clear, even from the earliest data on these vaccines, that that was never tested for. And shortly after the release of the vaccines, I think it became pretty clear that the vaccines do not, in fact, uh, stop infection and transmission. So that whole do it for the sake of others argument had fallen apart as far as I was concerned by the time we got to the point where institutions were considering vaccine mandates. So I thought, given the fact that the recipient is the is the person who's going to stand to benefit or stand to be harmed by this product, where there's risk, there has to be choice. Um, and it should be up to the individual. And we, we let people make ill-advised medical decisions all the time in order to respect that principle of informed consent. And so that was the argument. It was really an ethical argument. And it was a defense of something that I I believed was should have been fairly uncontroversial. Um, but it turned out there were apparently a lot of people that did, didn't see it that way. This was June 2021, right? That's the Wall Street Journal piece. I remember. Yeah, yeah. It was around June. And then, and then what happened a couple of months later, of course, in August was university, you know, either read my Wall Street Journal piece and was not convinced or they they ignored it, but they finalized their vaccine mandate. I wasn't able to successfully get a real debate going on our committee or uh, at the UC Office of the President. And then I started seeing people getting steamrolled by this policy. I had students reaching out to me saying, I'm not a religious person, but I have moral objections to the vaccine and there's no recourse for me to submit an exemption. I'm like, to their credit, they were trying to be honest and, you know, not not pretend to have a religious conviction that was being violated when they didn't. Uh, but these students were being kicked out of school. I saw nurses that had served decades in treating patients and caring for patients at the hospital, so including during COVID, putting themselves at risk. I have a follow-up for Aaron based on something you were saying earlier there. Um, so just, just a quick reiteration of what you were saying. So your opposition to vaccine mandates was not based on efficacy and safety, right? I mean, obviously that furthers your case now that we know yeah, all the side effect right. profile. But that's right. Let's say, let's say the vaccine was far more effective, and you know the adverse event rate for all we knew was you know one in a million or one per two million instead of the one in eight hundred from the Freeman colleagues paper. This is the best data we have. You would still oppose uh, the mandates. That, that's correct. That's correct. That's yeah, correct so, on, on so, ethical grounds. 
Yeah. Okay. But so a, a lot of people, they brought this up at the time and still do. Um, do you still oppose then other vaccine mandates like for various elementary schools or preschool programs or various clubs and whatnot for kids like mandatory school vaccinations? Like, Do you still oppose those or do you think it's a different situation there? I do. And I would say my thinking on that has probably evolved based on my experience with these vaccine mandates. Um, it's it's led me to dig a little more deeply into the whole ethical question of childhood vaccine uh, vaccine requirements as well. Um, and I believe that states like California, where I live, that have basically no provision for conscience exemptions and no provision for religious exemptions and even are trying to punish any physicians who write uh, medical exemptions, even when those medical exemptions may be appropriate, uh, these kinds of requirements for vaccines go too far and end up abridging the rights of parents to make informed medical decisions on behalf of their children. And what I've come to what I've come to see is that, you know, mo most parents, I think, quite obviously, the vast majority of parents want to do the best thing for their children and their children's health. And when something is obviously good for your child, you don't have to threaten people in order to help them do it. I mean, you know, parents get their kids to brush their teeth um, without coercive mandates, you know, requiring that. Parents feed their children without coercive mandates requiring that. Mm. Um, that, that always struck me as a central point, right? So the key thing then, the key right. scarce resource here is public trust in what That's public right. health is saying. That's right. right. And, and so if you have a mandate, I, I personally actually, I'm, I don't have an ethical objection if you have a sterilizing man, uh, vaccine to mandating, but I view that as a failure of public health, right? Because if you're, if you're, you have a fantastic low, low uh, uh, side effect, high, uh, high st uh, efficacy sterilizing vaccine. Um, well, just like, as you say, with, toothbrushing, you don't need to mandate it as long as people tr That's trust right. public health when they say it, when they tr and public health is worthy of that trust. Well, I mean, in that case, then the, the existence of a mandate is a is by itself a failure of public health. Yeah, I think that's really very well put, Jay. And I, I agree with you 100 percent. And it's what's really concerning about what happened with the COVID vaccines is the just the amount of trust that was squandered. I mean, public health, this will take generations to recover from of, you know, highly responsible behavior, which I'm not, I'm not convinced our public health establishment is capable of, even if they want, you know, even if they saw the need for that. Um, you know, this, the, the, the trust that was squandered um, ha has not been regained. And I think will take a very long time to be regained and that does you know that does enormous harm Rav, to you everyone have a follow up you yeah a follow yeah Aaron, up. yeah yeah i'm 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 just very interested in, in what you're saying Aaron, and i kind of want to stretch this argument and to see where um your understanding of ethics goes like do you oppose any kind of um medical mandate like like in any situation um do you oppose vaccine mandates and you know if we take that further beyond vaccines maybe you know, obviously, doctors, you know, surgeons at operating tables, there are mandates for hand washing, you know, wearing rubber gloves, doing various kind of procedures for safety and caution. 
um, what's at, at what point does it make oh, sense sure. to I mandate? Mean, I, versus we should not have mandating? high we should have high standards for the behavior of physicians, absolutely, and we can have high standards for how physicians have to conduct themselves and what physicians have to do when administering treatments. But the idea that we can force a treatment on a competent individual uh, to me is very unsettling. I could perhaps come up with a theoretically a theoretical just so scenario where in theory, something like that might be justified. But I think those those scenarios always invite the response that, well, if something is so obviously good, people are going to elect to do it and you needn't force them. And as far as I could tell, every time we've forced things on people in the course of medical history, it's gone sideways. Um, I mean, I just can't think of a good example where mandates accomplished more good than voluntary adoption of an intervention would have accomplished. Yeah, I think um, right. Okay. And, and, and I just say, don't see it. Let's, like maybe in isolation for someone who has, um, you know, active TB who doesn't want to isolate or something. I mean, something like that. I could, I could imagine an ethical justification, even though that requires force. But those are rare. I think not, not the, yeah, not the norm. Like, like sure. Aaron, I'll, like I'll, I'll but, bring up like, like speed limits as well, right? For ordinary citizens, like people brought that up. And also, like, let, let's imagine, and there were some people um, who actually brought this up as hypothetical, like, w what if COVID was killing 5% of people, let's say, 6% of people? And, and let's say, and, and I think this is not um, fe feasible, but, let, but let's say f COVID was killing 5% of people. And let's say there was some strong, like, empowered, for, like, very powerful faction of the country that was still not getting the COVID vaccine. So let's say the, the infection fatality rate was 5%. And the side effect profile was way lower, one in one in a hundred million. Yet, for whatever strange reason, there, there's some <laughs> activated group, forty like percent of the country or thirty percent of the country, that isn't getting vaccinated. Does the principle still hold, or in in that case, could you see a theoretical basis for the mandates? Yeah, I mean, these are these are interesting scenarios. Let me let me start with Jay's scenario of, of confinement of a symptomatic infectious individual um, involuntary quarantine. I think uh, with the right due process involved in that, um, rights of appeal, a legal fact-finding process to establish that this is necessary, something like that for a limited period of time might be justified. I think there should be additional legal thresholds for involuntarily treating that person. I mean, I think anyone with active TB who doesn't want treatment is probably a little bit crazy, but you should be, have to go to court to actually establish that. Let me, let me give you an example from my own experience in forensic psychiatry. So I deal with people who make ill-advised medical decisions all the time, in part because they're affected by a severe mental illness and they're delusional. But even when a person is obviously delusional, they believe aliens have implanted a chip in my brain and are controlling me from outer space. They have active schizophrenia. They're on an inpatient psych ward and they're refusing medications. In the state of California, I actually have to petition the court, even if the person is already involuntarily hospitalized, I have to petition the court to give them a medication without their consent, to put them on an antipsychotic medication. And then I have to go to court 
and the, the patient is represented in that hearing. It's called a Reese hearing in the state of California. They're represented by a lawyer. And I, the burden of proof is on me as the hospital or the physician to establish, number one, that they lack decisional capacity because of their mental illness. And two, that this medication is very likely to do more, more good than harm. And then the judge has to make a determination. And even if I get a favorable ruling, that allows me to medicate the person only for a couple of weeks while they're on the inpatient ward. Once they leave, you know, they're, they're allowed to make their own medical decisions for good or ill. Right. This is like a 5150 process or. Well, this, yeah, this is even beyond a 5150 J because a 5150, I can write to confine a person for three days involuntarily in California. If I think they're dangerous or if I think they're gravely disabled, but a 5150 does not actually allow me to medicate that person without oh. their consent. That's that. What I'm saying is that requires an additional legal process, a legal fact finding adversarial process is very case specific. Uh, it actually labor intensive to be able to administer an antipsychotic medication to someone who's clearly mentally ill. And I think that's actually a good thing, right? But, but hopefully that puts into context the kind of due process requirements that should be in place when we're talking about forcing medical treatment on someone. Uh, it typically requires, in the case of a mental illness, this uh, a hearing like the one I just described, a Reese hearing in the state of California, or a, a court order, an order from a judge after an adversarial fact-finding process where the patient has the right to to make their own claims. And, and the, the idea United that it has a has a bad history, right? As you as you well know, Aaron. With that's this, right. Uh, I mean, there's this that's famous right. uh, ruling, Buck versus Bell. The yeah, Supreme Court that's right. said it was okay for it was it was legal constitutional to force uh, a, uh, a somebody to be sterilized without their consent um, because they were you know, I don't know had some men mental deficiency or something. Um, I mean that was a, that I think most legal scholars now see is like an absolutely shocking breach of of human rights, and yet that's the right. U.S. Supreme Court said okay to it. That's right. 1927, Buck v. Bell. Carrie Buck was diagnosed with, quote unquote, congenital feeble mindedness, which was just as loose and elastic category back then as it is now. It was not really well medically defined. Most most historians now think she was just sort of impoverished and uneducated. She she didn't have any sort of cognitive disability. Um, but that upheld the state of Virginia's uh, law that allowed for the steriliz involuntary sterilization of uh, people uh, for be because they were seen as basically unfit to reproduce because they were mentally ill, because they were physically disabled, or because like in the case of Carrie Buck, she was just impoverished and uh, got pregnant out of wedlock. And in, in the Supreme Court ruling in that case, Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., famous American jurist, relied on a 1905 precedent called Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which was about, guess what? Which was about giving a vaccine for smallpox without the patient's consent, a vaccine mandate. And Justice Holmes said in Buck v. Bell, the principle that allows for the administration of a vaccine is wide enough to cover the cutting of the fallopian tubes. 
That's a direct quote from the majority ruling. And then the infamous line, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Um, so yeah, there, there have been these abuses in the history of public health in the United States. The history of public health in the United States is inextricable from the history of eugenics. It's a very dark history. Um, and that's recognized in the psychiatric realm. So we have these, these stringent legal protections for psychiatric patients. But then when it comes to vaccine mandates during COVID, you could have a director of human resources at a corporation threatening the loss of a job. You could have state and federal governments threatening the loss of a job or being kicked out of school if you try to re uh, exercise your right of informed consent or informed refusal. And I, I just, I just think that was, that was wrong under the circumstances very I mean, clearly. Can, can, can I note an irony here? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that in the decision about whether to prioritize medical personnel for the vaccine in December of 2020, um, the argument was given that, well, if people are, if medical personnel are sick, then it'll, it may potentially hurt patients because they're not, you know, going to have short staffing right. shortages. And yet nurses were kicked out because they weren't taking right. COVID yes. vaccines. Just so. Yeah, there was already a nursing shortage, but we were firing nurses. So, yeah, getting back to my story, I'm seeing nurses getting fired while we supposedly have a nursing short, very, very good nurses. Um and I just decided at that point, Jay, that it wasn't enough for me to make a public argument, you know, in a newspaper that this was a bad policy, that I couldn't credibly continue as director of medical ethics if I, if I didn't actually try to do something to change the policy. So I made the decision to challenge the vaccine mandate in federal court on equal protection, 14th Amendment equal protection grounds. And the university acted very swiftly after I filed the lawsuit to, to fire me basically as quickly as they could. So that that's the end of that. That's the punchline of the story of my. You were, my time you were a, a director of medical ethics. You were acting at, uh, in in um, based on your honest reading of the ethics of the situation. You had you were a full professor, so you had tenure. And the uh, because you filed a lawsuit with UC Irvine, the University of California fired you. That's right. Hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the irony was not lost on many people. University ethics professor fired for challenging the ethics of you know the university's policy was was a bit of a headline. So the the story got some attention, you know, in the news, and. Um, and, you know, it led to me getting more engaged in public policy debates on not just vaccine mandates, but other COVID related issues as well. So it's it's been quite quite an adventure for me since then, as I'm as I know, you know your own career has taken well, an I mean, interesting trajectory like the, since you. One of the blessings yeah. of, of what happened to you is that I think I because of that, that happened to you, I, I learned about you. And I think uh, that we, we become friends as a result of it. So yeah. they're, they're not it's not all it's all bad. But um, no, 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 not at all. Talking. Not at all. I've met some wonderful people uh, uh, like I mean, you and Rav that are Aaron. That, you know, yeah, I wouldn't have otherwise connected with. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. So so two things. So uh, first of all, one story comes to mind. I believe this was I believe this was in the state of Washington. There was a hospital. Uh, I think Marty McCary told the story a few times at various places of a hospital that was initially firing nurses who were unvaccinated, but then later on experienced such a, a big shortage 
that nurses who had COVID, they brought them back and said, yeah, um, yeah that's right. You, you still have to serve and you still have to work. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that, as well as the previous hypothetical um, that I wanted your thoughts on about, uh, you know, a pandemic killing more people and, and many people still refusing and a vaccine that's much, much more sterilizing. Yeah. I'm curious where your bioethical uh, principles, like if there are any limits to that, I'm very curious yeah. to hear your thoughts. So that, that was one of the points. That's a great question. Great question, Rav. And I, I remember that as well. And I remember the policies that permitted that for healthcare workers. And essentially what you had there, that was a moment when I think the whole, I'll call it the COVID regime, tipped its hand in terms of what was really going on. Because if the issue was really about public health and the protection of patients, it would obviously be, be illogical to have a patient with active COVID treating, or I, I'm sorry, excuse me, to have a nurse with active COVID treating patients instead of an unvaccinated nurse, or particularly a nurse who had already recovered from COVID and was unlikely to be reinfected, treating the same patient. I mean, if you're a patient in the hospital, you know, I, I ask 100 patients in the hospital, would you rather be treated by a nurse who we know has just tested positive for COVID? Or would you rather be treated by a nurse that has not been vaccinated? You know, 100 out of 100 people would say, I would rather be treated by a nurse who's not been vaccinated than one that we know has COVID. That I mean, that's so obvious as to not require any explanation. So the fact that we were not doing that made it clear to me that these mandates were about something other than public health, that they were about forcing compliance, that they were being driven by economic or political interests, that they were not really about patient welfare or hospital staff welfare or controlling the spread of the virus because you know, we ended up tying ourselves in such strange knots and ended up with these blatantly obvious absurdities and contradictions that would not have been conceivable if it was really about public health. And with respect to um, any potential limits on the principles, so with um, the, the hypothetical that I painted, curious about your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I, I just again, I'm going to I'm going to fall back on the idea that if something is so obviously good for people, you're going to have a tiny minority of people that will not choose to do it. But forcing it upon people, I think that just historically, I, I just can't find a historical example where things have gone otherwise, forcing things on people. And giving anyone the power to decide that this thing is so obviously good that we can and should force it on people. If we're talking about a medical intervention, mm -hmm. okay, I'm not talking about uh, I'm not talking about involuntary quarantine for a time limited period, which may be justified. Uh, I'm talking about uh, you know requiring requiring something uh, someone to basically. Uh, put something in, in their bodies that they may, may, may not want. I just can't find any, any actual real world examples, or as a matter of prudence, I think it would be justified. Like again, um, yeah, you can come I, up with I, theoretical talking, scenarios right. that, um, you know, uh, 
that make make a compelling case that we ought to do this. But I just don't think that translates into real world dynamics of how power uh, and how freedom actually operates in these sorts of circumstances. Can, can, let me make a comment on this, uh, on the hypothetical, Raph, because uh, it's an incomplete hypothetical in my view. If you have a very highly, uh, uh, you know, a high infection fatality rate disease, five, six, seven percent or whatever, really, really high, ridiculously high, order of magnitude higher than COVID, um, and you have a vaccine um, that protects against that severe severe disease, but also isn't sterilizing, seems to me the case for a mandate is much less. I mean, that case, if someone doesn't take it, well, their their decision isn't having a very large impact on other people. It's just their own private mm-hmm. private ethics or whatever. You know, maybe they don't trust trust the uh, the public health authorities to not take. What it. if it is sterilizing? I, I, in case I missed to mention so that, that, that is what I was implying. If it was if it was sterilizing and highly effective, then I mean, I, I think Aaron's right. I think in that setting, it's very unlikely you'd need a mandate because you have something that's scaring the living daylights out of, out of the population. Uh-huh. You have a vaccine in your hypothetical that's not causing uh, severe, severe side effects and is sterilizing. Most people would just take it. I mean, you could mm-hmm. see that early in the in the rollout of the vaccine in December of that's 2020. Right. Yeah. You had people, you know, tripping over themselves to get the vaccine before before they were actually supposed to get it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you both. But again, I'm still I'm trying to push back or challenge some of this because I, I could it's 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 unlikely and, and difficult to imagine to some extent but i could see especially with like covid right now a lot of people there's been a lot of rational vaccine hesitancy but there's been a lot of irrational vaccine hesitancy as well and i could see hypothetically if we had a pandemic tomorrow with an eight percent infection fatality rate there's going to be some you know morons and you know, people on the fringes or conspiracy theorists I'm just saying hypothetically, if that was a very significant, but, but, I mean, even even in that case, like let's just take keep stick to this hypothetical. Even in that case, yeah. if I get the vaccine, I protected my get myself against severe disease, and so I don't right. the, the the externality yeah. the, in the sense of the economic externality where I my well being depends on decisions of others um, is much less right because by taking the vaccine, I've, un, I've reduced my the the uh, the effect of other people's decisions on my risk. Um, so I think even in that setting, it's unclear that you it, it, it would, that you need a mandate in order right. to protect the, the protect the people that want to be protected. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. That okay. Can we? Can we? I want to. I want to keep us on schedule. So I wanted to uh, move on to your fantastic book, Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Uh, Aaron, can you? So can you tell us when did you? When did you conceive of the book? When did you? When yes. did you start writing? And and uh, tell us about the book. Yeah, so the book I wrote last year uh, in the months after I was like open the university. And initially it was an attempt to understand what was hap- what happened during COVID, including what happened to me. But very quickly, th- the book moved beyond that initial question of trying to figure out the, the larger context for what happened and really became a book, in my opinion, a, not so much about COVID, but a book about the future. So the book is called The New Abnormal. And you mentioned, Jay, that the subtitle is The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And basically what I discovered, going back to my remark earlier, that that there were so many weird contradictions 
that to understand why some of these policies were put in place, you had to try to go beyond a public health ex explanation. You had to look at some of the political and economic and social factors that were driving this. And to me, that was the only way of making sense out of what happened and trying to explain what happened and, and where it came from, whether it was the ill-advised decision to not just lock down, but stay locked down for such long, you know, prolonged periods of time, the school closures, uh, the vaccine mandates, the vaccine passport systems that became sort of exclusionary in many jurisdictions. I don't, I basically, as I started researching the book, I, I quickly came to the point where I realized you can't explain this by just by sort of competing visions of public health. <laughs> you, you have to look at the broader historical, economic, and social and political factors at work. And what I call the biomedical security state is really a 20, 25 year development. I dig into, into the history of that a little bit in the book, but it's essentially the melding together of three things that used to be distinct. The, the first element is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And I explain in the book what I mean by militarized public health apparatus. The second element is the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control uh, to monitor and in some cases enforce compliance with public health directives. And the third element is that those two things, the increasingly militarized public health infrastructure and digital technologies of surveillance and control are backed up by the police powers of the state and severe punishments in some cases for dissidents including, as you and I have both experienced, government-sponsored censorship of uh, people raising dissenting opinions. So the, the book explains uh, the 20-year development of the biomedical security state, which was manifested and first became really publicly visible during the pandemic, but had a long, I argue, incubation period in the two decades um, prior two to decades, the pandemic. You're, you're talking about the war on terror, like that's yeah. the root of it? Yeah. That, yeah. This this began around uh, the time of 9-11 when our, uh, our foreign policy and security establishment became increasingly concerned about biological weapons. That's, that's a piece of it. But there was also an interesting shift that I trace back to 1997 when there was a conference in D.C., sponsored actually by uh, or organized by Anthony Fauci, where there was this very subtle shift in just characterizing, um, let's say, the, the enemy when it comes to epidemics, because traditionally epidemics or pandemics, the, the threat or the enemy was seen as the pathogen. And traditional public health involves defending ourselves against the pathogen. So strengthening the host's immune response through healthier behaviors, isolating or quarantining the sick, the, the symptomatic people that we know can spread the illness. Um, and then using, uh, treating the sick, obviously people who get sick, trying to minimize the adverse impact of that and certainly trying to uh, prevent them from dying. And, um, and, and using preventive measures like vaccines in order to protect people from the pathogen. But in this traditional public health, the pathogen is seen as a thing that we have to quote unquote fight, right? If you wanna use a military metaphor here. What happened at that conference, Jay, in 1997 was that instead of the pathogen being seen as the enemy, 
humanity itself was characterized as the problem. Humanity, human beings as a vector of disease were the problem to be solved. And if you see human beings as a vector of disease as the problem to be solved, then the solution has to require total control over the entire population, right? And that's where you get the genesis of the idea of society-wide lockdowns. That's where you get the genesis of society-wide surveillance as a public health tool. Um, and so I, tr I trace the birth or, or the conception of the biomedical security state back to that subtle shift in public health, which has enormous political implications enormous implications for what needs to be done under a state of emergency in, tr in terms of very fine-grained surveillance and control over not just the health-related behaviors of people, but even the movements of people, you know, the gathering of people in public spaces. All of this, all of this stuff becomes conceivable in the minds of public health officials if they believe that our job is basically to control all of humanity to prevent people from encountering one another so that they don't, they don't spread a virus. So you know, the they, idea is that we are each of us biohazards. That's, that's right. Yes, we are. exactly. Um, exactly. Or at least, at least biological threats. I mean, you think the, the, the whole specter of asymptomatic spread, which should have been put to rest very early on because we knew that asymptomatic spread with this virus as with previous viruses, you could correct me if I'm wrong on this. This is your area of expertise, not mine. But my, my reading of the, the, the data early on was that we knew that asymptomatic spread was not a primary driver of this illness. And I yet think, um, that idea I... kept being sort of cultivated as though it could be, uh, which essentially turned every other human being into a potential threat to my existence, right? So, that I... Uh, so my take is a little bit different, although it's related. So I, I, I do think that asymptomatic spread can happen. It's, it's rarer. So like if you're, if you are, are harboring the virus and you have no symptoms, it's less, much less likely you'll pass it on. But of course you have many more interactions with the people because you don't, you know, you don't think you're sick. Um, I don't think the implication of that is lockdown, right? I don't, I don't think the implication of that is that we have to shut society down. I think because the, and the reason is that, is that, uh, the, the the act of shutting society down actually causes much more health harm than than yeah. you would uh, prevent by this the spread of this asymptomatic. Uh, so I, yeah. I just I don't I've never viewed that as an essential part of the the anti lockdown argument um, that that doesn't spread asymptomatically. I mean I think it might. Um, it's it's an open question as far as I'm concerned in the in the epidemiological literature how yeah. to what extent all of the spread that happened. Uh, in, in, in 2020, 2021 was due to asymptomatic spread or not. Um, but evidently lockdown didn't work to stop it. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think, I think, um, but I want to, I want to come back to the, this, this question about, about bio biohazards, right? Cause it seems like it's directly at odds with your conception of what, uh, like what of, of the ethical principles that you outlined earlier that, that guided your work as the chair of of, uh, of director of medical ethics at UC Irvine, right? You're, you talk about uh, about essentially respecting people, making sure that there's that, that the limited resources are likely to benefit the most you know, benefit benefit people. Uh, you, you talk about like autonomy in the sense of like you, uh, irrelevant 
um, markers like, you know, uh, demographics, race, sex should not be considered. All of those principles sort of view humans as something as, 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 as beings that are worthy of respect and love and trust. Um, Whereas like the, 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 angle that you're talking about at this 1997 conference is that it, the humans are just are, we're just we're just dangerous to each other that's right yeah that's that's exactly right very well said jay are are human beings individuals who have intrinsic inalienable dignity who are, are gifted with intellect and free will it doesn't mean we always make good choices but it means that our freedom needs to be respected um, it means that our powers of, of judgment need to be respected. Or is humanity one big kind of inert blob of a biomass t- to be controlled by enlightened technocrats who know what's best for everyone? I think it's two very fundamentally different philosophers would call it, you know, philosophical anthropologies, two fundamentally different views of what it means to be human and what a human being is that are at work here uh, that are at work here and i um i think those deeper philosophical currents which i dig into a little bit in the book um are are very important to try to appreciate some of the clashes and conflicts that have occurred over covid policy and why covid became another for lack of a better term culture war issue, although it's it's strange. It's a culture war issue that doesn't fall out on typical left, right, liberal conservative yeah, lines, but it became a contentious issue. Right. Um, and I think part of that is that two approaches to the pandemic involved two fundamentally different ideas of what it means to be human. Hmm. And uh, Aaron, with how the pandemic has so strikingly revealed the corruption and the fallibility of medical institutions, public health experts, scientific authorities and whatnot. Um, A lot of people are now increasingly questioning other things too, like what their doctor is saying or what their psychiatrist is saying. There's a lot of uh, interesting trends going on with mental health. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman is kind of leading this interesting trend on YouTube and on podcasts for, you know, encouraging people to implement lifestyle and behavioral interventions. Yep. Um, of various kinds of various different kinds of natural supplements are becoming more popular, uh, more holistic, like psychedelic therapies are becoming more and more popular to deal with childhood traumas and motivate mm-hmm. different people's behaviors and whatnot. I'm curious. I mean, there's a lot of different questions that come from that. Um, and a lot of that relates to my own life as well. Increasingly asking more and more questions, taking more ownership of my own health, understanding the relationship between the mind and the body. Um, which is something that is very, very new to me and is still not traditionally spoken about, um, you know, at your, at your typical doctor's office, especially yep. with people with, you know, digestive problems or with other kinds of chronic illnesses, how that relates to various kinds of psychological disorders and stressors and traumas in life. Dr. Gabor Mate has some uh, very mm-hmm. interesting work on this. Yep. That I'm, I'm familiar into. with his work. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, <laughs> there's a lot of questions that I could come up there, but um, what do you think about that kind of trend? Um, if so far, I think there's a lot of great stuff there. Obviously, there's going to be some conspiracy theory and you know some people questioning everything mm-hmm. and just never, ever relying on any medical authority, obviously. But what do yeah. you make of, even as yourself as a practicing psychiatrist, like more and more people skeptical mm-hmm. of pharma, including myself, for 
ADHD yeah. medications, anxiety medications, SSRIs. There's more and more mm-hmm. data coming out. More and more people are skeptical and questioning whether a lot of these mainstream pharmaceutical interventions for things like depression and ADHD, which now more and more people are understanding is being overdiagnosed. Um, a lot of people are, are wondering whether they, they should be totally relying on their psychiatrists and their family doctors for things of that nature. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, on that. this is so this is a complicated question. I think these developments are a mixed bag, but I would say my view on balance, the the heightened skepticism around uh, big pharma and around ubiquitous prescriptions for various ailments as the primary exclusive sole solution to the problem. I think that's generally a good thing. Um, It's also possible to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I prescribe antidepressants routinely. They're good and necessary and even life-saving for many patients. But they're also, I would be the first to advocate, they're not the only solution to depression. So a very holistic uh, psychosocial approach that involves psychotherapy, which I spend most of my time as a clinician doing psychotherapy, uh, not primarily a prescriber of medications, um, way, although I do I'll, use them. I'll have to have you on again, Aaron, to talk about psychotherapy because that's a very interesting yeah. topic to me. Oh, no. This, we'll do so, another, yeah, this whole thing yeah, will we'll take do another us down lots of one. interesting okay, yeah, actually, rabbit let's, holes. Let's, but, let's, uh, stay, let's, stay, let's stay focused, you guys. So I want I want yeah. to go back to Aaron, your book, because like it's I'm, I'm just fascinated by this argument. So so you have you have a um, this like shift in public health away from humans as as worthy of dignity by themselves as but instead as biohazards 911 yeah. happens the anthrax scare happens which actually turns yeah. out to be a lab leak right um, and and uh, there's a apparatus built in the United States and elsewhere to try to protect against these kinds of bio, bi- against bioterrorist events and it m- shifts over to civilian use, right? In two, in 2006, mm-hmm. was it that there was a, uh, the, the avian flu scare and people thought, okay, what if we use this bio defense infrastructure to protect civilians against uh, p- pandemics? Is that rough, roughly the right timeline? Is that was Yeah, so- that's, that's, that is more or less what happened. Um, and actually the, <laughs> the, the, the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower dubbed it, was casting about for a new enemy around 2010, 2011, you know, 10 years into the war on terror, people were growing a little bit tired of wars in the Middle East that were dragging on. And, um, and bioterrorism as, as a novel threat that could never be fully eradicated and that needed more and more funding to fight, uh, was something that a lot of people in um, the defense industry uh, now becoming increasingly wedded to the uh, biomedical industry were interested in pursuing. And so you get, you get things paradoxically, you get things like gain of function research being supported and advocated for by people as a way to, to combat threats. Right? So the idea here is, Gain-of-function research, the, the term they always use is dual use, right? You can, you can make a more infectious virus in order to release it on the population or use it as a weapon against your enemy. Or you can make a more infectious virus because you think your enemy is making a similar virus 
And you can make it so that you can develop treatments or vaccines or, you know, other preventive measures. So that's the theory behind, and that's always the justification put forward by countries like ours who actually want to develop bioweapons <laughs> in, in, um, in contradiction to international law that we have signed on to and, and treaties that we have signed on to. And that's what was happening at the University of North Carolina. And when, when Americans found out that it was happening uh, in Ralph Barrick's lab at UNC, it was exported to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, so far as I could tell, that's, that's more or less what happened. So on top now, of that, there's this digital surveillance infrastructure. Tell, yeah, that's right. About that. Yeah, so the digital surveillance infrastructure is in part a result of new developments in technology, right? So this is the first pandemic of the digital age where we had mobile phones that could, you know, care, that could monitor the movements of entire populations. So we now know that the CDC... Uh, bought bulk cell phone data from a very shady company. Actually, I describe the details in my book if you want to if you want to dig into the details. But the, the CDC, without the notification or authorization or consent of the American people, was monitoring via bulk cell phone data how many people were gathered at churches and schools and other public places during lockdowns. And they admitted that they were going to use that data in the future for other public health applications. Um, and so the wide theory linking that to a philosophy that we're all just biohazards. That's right. That's right. And by the way, they, you know, th this was supposedly anonymized data, um, de-identified data, but there were some researchers at Princeton that showed with, with only four of the data points on any one of these devices, they could easily identify, you know, who it belonged to. So, um, so this was not this was not uh, information that respected privacy of of users. There's, obviously, this is not done with the user's knowledge or consent. Canada did the same thing, even though Justin Trudeau had publicly promised Canadians that they wouldn't be monitoring cell phone data during the pandemic in this in this way. So promises were made publicly that were violated. Um, the, the use of digital technologies for surveillance has only increased since the pandemic. And I, I talk about what the next steps in that process are going to be um, in terms of tying uh, digital IDs to biometric data. I have a whole section in the book on that. Uh, so COVID accelerated uh, the advance and, and the, the adoption and the kind of passive accept, acceptance of new levels of surveillance and control that under ordinary circumstances, you know, freedom loving Americans would never have accepted. Right. But because this is a crisis, because people were influenced by, by fear and because it was hurry up and do something. Um, we ended up with, with a lot of things that, you know, a couple of years prior would have seemed sounded insane to most people. Like I have to show a QR code to get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant, gather in a public space. And this demonstrates that I've done what the public health authorities told me to do, even if it means, you know, injecting myself with novel gene therapy that I may or may not have wanted. I mean, that sounds really dystopian. We're not, we're obviously not going to be doing that. And yet, lo and behold, <laughs> that's precisely what happened a year into the pandemic. After a year of lockdowns, people were willing to do just about anything to get back to a semblance of normal and they accepted things like vaccine passports if it meant they could travel again 
or go I mean, to the, a restaurant. The, the, the justification I think my, many people may have had in their heads for this, for accepting this, this, you know, these absolutely extraordinary intrusions into their, into their normal, normal uh, civil liberties uh, is, is that, look, we need to do this in order to, to make the virus go away. We need we need to do this to make the, the get, get the pandemic finally be over, and if it's if if I have to do this, accept this for for a while, the science is saying that we need to do this. Uh, then then I'm willing to do it. But like as, as we've talked about, the science really never was saying that we needed to do this to get to get rid of the virus. That's we don't right. actually we don't have a technology to get rid of the virus. That's right. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. I want to clarify. I think most ordinary Amer Americans were acting in good faith. I mean, there was a lot of civic mindedness and goodwill toward others. And let's, you know, let's not kill grandma. That was used as a fulcrum for people to advance economic aims, for people to advance political aims, for people to accrue new and additional powers. So I don't, I don't want to fault here the American people who accepted these things under these extraordinary circumstances, because I think most of them did so with goodwill. Um, but there were certainly people who should have known better <laughs> that, yeah. that advanced well, I mean, these the, things. That's the question, right? So like, how did that happen? How is it that uh, abroad in the population, the, the idea that these measures were A, backed by science, and B, uh, Requi uh, requiring us to to uh, violate basic civil liberties, as accept the violation of basic civil liberties. Those those two things together, uh, it seemed absolutely extraordinary to me. Right. So, how did this illusion of consensus around these measures being necessary come about? Um, and, and so, like you know, I, and I and I want to, I'd love to hear your experience because you mentioned censorship as part of the yep. part of the argument in the book. Your experience with 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 once you've decided that you were going to, you know, essentially cross the Rubicon, uh, you know, t take up arms against, or, you know, not, 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 not literally, but uh, take up, uh, uh, fight the public health establishment. Yeah. What happened to you, to your ability to speak, to, uh, to, to, to tell people, you know, with all your background and with all your, your credentials, look, something's really, really wrong here. Yeah. So it was actually my first interview with an independent journalist, um, you know, someone I respect a lot, very good journalist who left legacy media because she couldn't stand what was going on there. Um, but it was a small podcast show. And we were just this was right after I filed the lawsuit. And we were discussing the ethics of vaccine mandates. I wasn't getting into vaccine safety and efficacy issues. I was just talking about the ethics of mandates, a similar conversation to the one that we were having. Um, and expressing my my views on those mandates, which I don't claim to be infallible. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but but I have views that I consider fairly well informed. And this interview, <laughs> this interview was was taken down by YouTube. And the view the views of a professional ethicist, yeah. the director of medical ethics at UC Irvine, expressing your honest thinking about the most important ethical issue in biomedicine of the day yep. is too dangerous for the public to hear on YouTube. That's right. That's right. So, you know, that was my, that was my first and kind of right away experience with censorship. And then it was ongoing after that. Um, as, as I'm sure you experienced, there were many instances, of, you know, putting stuff out there on Twitter, 
and nobody being able to see it or, you know, people who had followed you on Twitter saying, you know, the, the algorithm keeps automatically unfollowing you. Like, I don't even realize that it happened. I go back and check and it's done it to me again. All, all this kind of behind the scenes, weird algorithmic stuff was happening routinely. And then the very explicit stuff where it's, you know, we have taken your post down because we don't like it, basically. Um, and and I think you have to look at, you know, there's there's many different factors at work there. One of them is economic. So you could uh, follow the money is one line of inquiry that can begin to answer the question of what happened and why. So the big tech, tech firms that control social media benefited from lockdowns, right? We know that. Amazon lobbied for lockdowns on the West Coast. Uh, why did they do that? Is that because Jeff Bezos is an expert on how to manage a novel coronavirus? No, it's because when people were locked down, look what happened to his personal wealth and look what happened to Amazon's stock when people were forced to do their shopping at home. When Amazon's competition in the form of small local businesses and retailers closed because of lockdowns, they made a killing, right? So it, it, these are the same people uh, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's the, the big online retailers or the firms like Google that control, um, a lot of the social media online that benefited from this particular policy economically and market share and power and all the rest but, of it. But it wasn't, it wasn't just private actors acting on their own to say, okay, well, Aaron's too dangerous to be. Uh, to no, 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 absolutely not. Yeah. We now know, as you know, well, they were doing it at the behest of, of the government. And this is, this is maybe, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say what's the worst thing that came out of the last three years, but th this would be among the worst things that's happened over the last three years is the unveiling of um, this censorship industrial complex, this censorship leviathan, um, where the line be between government and private entities becomes blurred to the point of disappearing entirely in many cases. And academics, by the way, that a and lot academics. Of this, yeah, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the sort of intellectual infrastructure about how to identify at scale dangerous uh, dangerous messages like like yours or mine or Rav's th that infrastructure um, depends or like that, that technology depends on academics actively, happily participating in the censorship regime. That's right. That's and Aaron, right. I, I want to I briefly go back before we go move on to Missouri versus Biden um, about any potential pharmaceutical and financial incentives at universities in particular to mandate the vaccines. Um, I think I actually saw this from you first. Um, you went on uh, Pfizer's website and looked at their uh, donations and it was several hundreds of thousands of dollars given to University of California alone and many other uh, universities as well. Um, although the mandates were quite ubiquitous, even at places that at least sure. to our knowledge, we're not exactly sure yeah. if they got any money from Pfizer or Moderna. Do you think that played a big role? And what are the implications of that? Sure. So there's there there is a lot of money that flows, and those donations, by the way, were just the gravy on top of the, the much larger grants to do research on pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies' products. And you know, most of the clinical trials research is conducted, um, or much of it at least, is conducted at universities, and a lot of the R and D for pharmaceutical companies is conducted at 
research universities. And I think more importantly, you had you, you had a situation created at the federal level with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, and Dr. Francis Collins at the NIH coming out and publicly endorsing certain public health policies. And their job at the NIH included basically holding the purse strings for, I think it's 80, 85% of uh, funding for research, biomedical research in the United States comes from the federal government, from the National Institute of Health. And they control that funding. Um, and if, if they don't like what someone at a particular university is saying in regards to public health policy, then, um, then they can turn off the funding uh, to that particular person and, and basically punish that person. So Anthony Fauci should never have been in the dual position of being a director at the NIH and also being on the White House Coronavirus Task Force and, and publicly on TV making particular policy recommendations. Because at that point, every primary investigator and every researcher at every university was on notice that if I contradict Anthony Fauci or if I challenge one of his preferred policies, that might harm my chances for grant funding. And even if I'm willing to do that out of my own personal integrity, I'm probably going to get pressure from my institution not to speak out against any policies that the powers that be at the NIH have endorsed. So we created a situation in which universities certainly had financial interests at stake in terms of uh, grant fu funding from ph pharmaceutical companies, but they also had financial interests at stake in terms of grant funding from the federal government, if they had faculty members like me or Jay causing any trouble by raising inconvenient questions about uh, the government's preferred pandemic policies. And I think that set us up for a situation in which universities were basically um, commandeered and, and operating uh, at the whims of the federal bureaucracy or the moneyed interests that had a significant stake in some of these questions. Okay, now is a good time for Missouri versus Biden. Um, and you, you and I are both co. Uh, well, actually, what is exactly our status? I mean, I think we're, we're co-plaintiffs. Co yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah. Now we're we're private plaintiffs in the case, Jay. But we recently converted the case to a class action lawsuit, which means. You and I, and I think this is actually pretty cool, you and I are representing in this case any American citizen whose First Amendment free speech rights were violated through government censorship. Right. And the, and the, the case is brought by the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's Office. So it's not, these are not like, this is not a case where we're trying to like get m money from the Correct. government. For, That's right. The, the, and it's brought it's brought by state governments trying to, uh, rein in the abuse of power by the Biden administration. So I would love, Aaron, if you could tell our audience about some of the evidence that's been uncovered in the case about what exactly the Biden administration has done to censor yeah. American free speech rights, and in particular to violate First Amendment rights of basically everybody. Yeah. Okay. So to make a long story short, starting around 2017, the federal, federal government increasingly became engaged in pressuring, including with social media companies to censor information that they did not like, typically information that um, would advance policy aims or question uh, the preferred policies of individuals in power in the federal government. And there are at least a dozen 
specific federal agencies that have been named as defendants in this suit where we have considerable evidence for their involvement from White House officials to the NIH and the CDC and public health agencies, but also um, security and intelligence agencies from the FBI to um, to the, the Department of State actually was involved in censorship. And this one, um, I, 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 I can't figure out what's going on here, but apparently the Department of Treasury was involved in censoring information, you know, criticizing the federal government's monetary policy. And even the Census Bureau, Jay, was involved in censorship, uh, according to some of the evidence that we have in this case. So like th this whole I call it a Leviathan because th th this whole thing really is is vast. And they partnered with the university, Stanford University, Stanford Internet Observatory and an outfit up at the University of Washington are seem to be the two kind of key players uh, among the universities. And they partner with these quasi-private uh, nonprofits. I, I say quasi-private because a lot of them were funded by the federal government. They received federal grants. So they're, they're government-funded entities. And a lot of the people that um, are, are leading the charge in those ent uh, entities were also involved in censorship in various federal government agencies. So it's this kind of revolving, you know, incestuous <laughs> yeah, I mean, like machinery where, again, the line between public and private becomes blurred to the point of disappearing entirely. Like, and when you say it this way, it almost sounds like a conspiracy theory. All these oh, like vast agencies. It does. But, yeah. okay, so how exactly do they do this? How do they accomplish their censorship? Yeah. So they developed, um, they developed algorithms to find out um, basically who were the people advancing ideas that we don't like uh, about COVID or actually, you know, we initially, we initially filed this in related to, in relation to COVID censorship, right? You, Martin, me, the Health Freedom Louisiana group uh, were censored on COVID related matters, but on discovery, uh, the documents have revealed that there was censorship regarding elect election integrity, regarding highly contentious issues of public debate from gender ideology to abortion to um, the war in Ukraine to our, our the, the way in which we exited uh, Afghanistan, all kinds of things have been implicated as targets for censorship. And basically, basically what these entities did is that they had individuals working around the clock to flag information that they didn't like that seemed to be getting traction online. And those individuals were generally targeted for censorship. And some of this was done algorithmically, but some of this was done literally by hand. It would be, you look, Jay Bhattacharya has got a large following on Twitter and this annoying Karyati guy seems to have a growing following. And they're saying X, Y, and Z. And we're getting emails from federal officials, including officials in the White House, to senior executives at social media companies saying, why does so-and-so still have an account on your platform? Why haven't they been kicked off? Or why is this tweet still up? I mean, one of the astonishing things about this case was not just that the federal government pressured social media companies to develop algorithms to censor information they didn't like but that the federal government 
was getting down into the weeds at that level of detail uh, and, and communicating on really on, a, on an around the clock basis with social media companies to censor Americans. I mean, so I mean it's, it's really, a, it's really a, astonishing. When you say a Leviathan, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's essentially, it's this enormous behemoth telling social media companies what to censor, who to censor and threatening right. their business if they don't comply. Mm. That's right. The most, that's right. I mean, I, the, the most ridiculous yeah. part of this is just the arrogance of these people and these agencies, yeah. um, pretending or, or acting as if they, they have access to the truth and these other people don't. And I mean, even if they did, even if, you know, Jay was a conspiracy theorist, I mean, maybe not far off. No, just, <laughs> Come on. No, if, if you know, if, if Jay and you, Aaron, if, if you guys were all fringe and genuinely stupid, moronic, you know, far right people or whatever you want to call it, it's, it still doesn't make sense why you would censor all these people. But you guys were vindicated on, on so many fronts. I mean, lockdowns, yeah. mask mandates, vaccine mandates, safety and efficacy of vaccines. So that makes their uh, pressuring various social media companies to, to censor and blacklist and throttle you guys all the more striking and even more absurd. That's right. You know, and free speech guarantees don't exist for people that have mainstream opinions that are widely accepted by everyone. We wouldn't need the First Amendment to protect that. Um, the First okay, Amendment we exists couple- to protect unpopular opinions. So we only have a couple more minutes. So I want I want you to uh, focus on one on the on the question that's burning in my head, yeah. Which is what should be done about this? Like I I think we're going to win this Missouri versus Biden case. Yep. What should be done so that this sort of restriction on basic civil liberties doesn't happen again? What 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 do you hope to get out of this case so that there's yeah. uh, so so that uh, we don't have a repeat of this or continuation of this yeah. censorship industrial complex? So a, a couple of things I think need to happen. One is that uh, the liability gates need to be opened up such that people can go after the private companies for censoring at the behest of the government. Um, I think that's very necessary, actually, uh, because in, in doing that, the companies are basically cooperating in breaking the law. Um, and I think already, based on this case, the companies are going to be more wary of censorship if they think they could be held liable um, when the censorship is basically done at the directive of uh, any elected official or any elected official's appointee. So I, I hope that one of the outcomes will be social media companies will be extremely gun shy and wary of getting involved with state actors on anything where those state actors may influence their content related decisions. I hope this will also be a warning shot across the bow uh, to basically put a hold on all internal, intra-governmental and external government to industry communications regarding content moderation or disinformation, so-called, or censorship. And if we get this preliminary injunction, that will be a step in that direction, because what the preliminary injunction will be is essentially a federal judge saying to any of the defendants named in this case or anyone similarly situated in the federal government, that if you continue to communicate 
um, in writing with any of the social media companies about this stuff, that information can be subpoenaed in this case. And then you could potentially be liable for contempt of court for violating the injunction, hmm. which is a criminal offense, not just a civil penalty. Right. Um, so a, an injunction would be helpful in that regard. I think it would halt a lot of this activity. At least it would push a lot of it. it would have, have to happen much more surreptitiously, uh, which would make it harder. What, the real question, though, Jay, is what happens if we win this case? Like, how is the enforcement mechanism going to continue after people are no longer under the threat of having this information subpoenaed and being held in contempt of court? Uh, and, and and so forth. I don't know the answer to that question because you know the executive branch of government is the branch responsible for enforcing the law and for implementing decisions of the courts and when the courts interpret the laws and apply them to specific cases. Well, the Department of Justice and the FBI are among the defendants named in this suit, right? So, yeah. so who's going to enforce the ruling? I think the case will go to the Supreme Court. And it, I just wonder if the court's going to have to set up some sort of, I don't know, independent con con congressional oversight mechanism or, or something to keep an eye on this thing. But it's a really, really hard question when the people that are supposed to be enforcing the law are violating the law routinely. How do you rein that in? I mean, it's a hard constitutional problem to solve. Yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's examples of like uh, the courts establishing a special master to oversee elections in the mm -hmm. in in this um in the south when when uh the like racial yep. animus yep. was at, at its peak i mean there there are examples in american history but it's going to have to take something like that uh to so to make sure that the federal government doesn't step out of line the way it has like this, in particular the executive branch stepping out of line violating basically pretty fundamental rights like like the free speech Aaron, um, so it's four o'clock, and uh, it's it's uh, we've had you for for uh, for exactly the promised time, and I don't want I want to be respectful of that. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on, and thank you for your advocacy, your your just calm uh, calm courage throughout through throughout the pandemic, and for your example, a, a man who works in bioethics as a chair of bioethics, actually living up to the principles that he talks about. That's that's rare in these days, and I'm um, so you, grateful Jay. to know you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise, the, the respect is mutual. So this has been fun. Really enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Rap. Take care. Have a great, great time, everybody. See you. Okay, that's a wrap, right?